Hello, and thanks for tuning in to episode 23 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today my guest is architect Mike Nuzzo. Most artists wait a career for that one project or commission job that allows them total creative freedom, a budget that entirely supports the necessary procedures for it, and an open time frame that allows the vision to reach its fullest potential. Mike Nuzzo got this and more on his very first solo design. A native of New Jersey, Nuzzo's path to architecture is one of the most fascinating in the business. He worked for years in the field of aerospace engineering, designing complex telecommunication satellites, among other things. But in the late 90s, he felt a change was needed. He relocated his family to Houston, where he began doing odd jobs for the firm of Finger Die and Span, everything from photography to CAD programming to GPS surveying. In 2005, Nuzo heard of a retired businessman who wanted to develop part of his large ranch near Port Lavaca on the Gulf Coast into a private course intended only for his own use. Or more precisely, the man, Al Stanger, had heard of Mike Nuzo through the website Mike had created to promote his own design business. Stanger, a no-nonsense fellow, was attracted to Nuzo's honesty, hands-on approach, and low-key temperament, and soon hired him to design the course that would eventually become Wolf Point. For help, Nuzo reached out to a friend named Don Mahaffey, a highly respected turf and irrigation specialist, and together over the course of nearly three years, with just a small crew and ongoing encouragement from Stanger, Wolf Point took form. Very few people have played Wolf Point, but those who have extol its unique ground-hugging character, the wide, natural, and roughless playing areas, and some of the most creative greens in modern golf. Wolf Point and Mike Nuzzo's creative design there demonstrate above all the value and importance of one thing, opportunity. In part one of our talk, we get to know Mike as he fills us in on his journey up to Wolf Point and some of the remarkable factors that went into its conception. Later in part two, we get into Wolf Point's construction and character, what it feels like to have designed one of the best courses almost no one has seen, the precarious future of the property, and an interesting new public project he's currently building. Enjoy the first part of what I'm calling the Mike Nuzzo story. So you mentioned that your oldest daughter is into photography. How did she get into that and, and what's she doing with that? Our oldest daughter is about to turn 16 this week. Congratulations. And, well, thank you. Thank you. She, well, I remember she got her first camera. was like a little tiny digital camera. And uh, when she was like three, this was her sophomore year in high school. So she was, the number of years of photography she had taken to this point, she wound up being in an AP photography class. And... She's more interested in having fun with photography. So right. she's expanded her horizons quite a bit, a number of projects. And one of the elements that is really uh, tied together with uh, her interest in music. So she has become a novice professional, I call her professional concert photographer at this point, based on the number of shows she goes to and, and the results she gets after she comes back. They've been quite, quite... Uh, Surprising. Does she photograph from the audience or does she get access to the stage or backstage? As, as a fan, as a spectator. Uh -huh. as a spectator. So, Capturing the fan so, experience. Yeah, so when she was younger, she went to a lot of Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana, even when One Direction was still One Direction. Those were her, like her teeny bopper days. There was even a phase where she was interested in country music, which I was a little worried about there, but that, <laughs> not that it wasn't good, but but it wasn't quite uh, 
I hadn't listened to a lot of country music at that point, but there was some, there were some Hunter Hayes days there when, uh, like elementary school. As she got older, her musical taste did evolve a bit, so she's, she had more interest in uh, rock, hip hop, and now more and more rap, because rap is certainly uh, popular uh, with everybody. So there was, uh, it was maybe four years ago now, she was interested in going to see Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. Mm-hmm. And it was a small venue that I was very familiar with. And I took her and one of her friends, and we call that her first real concert experience because it was quite a bit different. It was a standing room only, maybe 2,000 people fit in the venue. It's a nice, smallish venue that I've been to a lot. And I showed her the ropes and had to get around a standing room only because she was still... She's petite, so to try to get into a standing room on the venue, I showed her what I knew about getting around the venue and getting to a good vantage point, and we wound up uh, on the front row, her, her friend, and me kind of protecting them, making sure they didn't get crushed. And then there were a couple of couple of opening acts that were so loud and jumping up and down, and they were like, they were in over their heads. They were super excited, and then... Macklemore came out and he was he was fantastic and ever since then Isabel's been hooked on live music more than ever just seeing how dynamic a show it was how loud how interactive everything was so ever since then she has been in love with live shows and even at that show every when you go to a show you see everyone in front of you holding their phone up in front of you and you're wondering you're at the show you really need to take another picture but her even at that show, her photography, because she had had at that point a couple of years of schooled photography under her belt, she was starting to get some good results. And so there's some pictures even from that show that, that wind up in her present portfolio. So that was a start. And I had no idea how many, how, what kind of a start it would be because I think it's been weekly. It feels like weekly. It feels like she goes to a show a week. I mean, really, during the school year, it's a little less. But, but so far this summer... She has every weekend she's been at a show. So it's been, it's been phenomenal for her to go have so much fun with a friend and get out. Yeah. See live music. One of the hardest things for her is to find enough friends to go to shows with her. That, that sounds exciting to me thinking about my kids growing up, but I've been to enough concerts. It's also a little frightening. Are they always chaperoned at that age? How are you, how are you cool with that? That's a good question, and if, if I can turn that into a little bit of story, I'd, I'd like to share it. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. There was, it was two years ago when March Madness was playing in Houston. NCAA basketball tournament was in town, and they were going to put on a live show. And the live show was at a, a large, it had a number of big acts. One of them was a, was a I forget who the rapper was, but it was a, he was a big deal. And at the time, Isabel was very much into One Direction. Even they were just kind of breaking up, I believe, and Harry Styles was kind of taken off. So her wall was plastered with pictures of Harry Styles. But in the corner, there was this one picture of 21 Pilots. It was a band I was not familiar with. And I looked at that picture. I'm like, who are these guys? They had this red makeup on and red, strange red outfits. She told me who they were. And they were actually one of the middle acts at that free show for the March Madness, and Isabel said she clearly wanted to go. And I was thinking, how could we go to a free show in the middle of Houston 
for one of the bigger events in the country. I didn't know how we would do it. I didn't know how we'd use the restrooms. I didn't know how we would, because <laughs> in order to save a spot at a standing room only free show, you'd have to, the logistics and that like blew my mind and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see a path to doing it. I didn't know how her and I could go do it alone. So we watched the show live on a live webcast. And at the end of the show, I, I apologized, Isabel. I said, I'm sorry. That was amazing. I had no idea 21 Pilots was that good. And ever since then, I've been a huge fan. <laughs> so what we, what we wound up doing is we were working on our summer plans, our summer vacation plans. And we decided to go on, uh, we'd seen most of the beaches in Texas. And so we wanted to head east to go see how far east to get to a nice beach in Alabama, the panhandle of Florida. Primarily in Alabama, there's some really nice beaches. So we decided to make that uh, summer trip. So we actually drove. We had a crazy trip. We drove through New Orleans. We saw some of the funkiest sights on, coming and going. We made a cool, basically every 100 miles, we found the neatest thing we could find from voodoo museums in New Orleans to this mystery museum on the north side of Pontchartrain, Lake Pontchartrain, just some really weird, bizarre things, and like battleships, and they got to pet dolphins, and we parasailed, and all kinds of fun and interesting, cool trip stuff. And when we were in Alabama, one of the highlights was that we made a change in plans. We went to go see 21 Pilots, so they were playing in Alabama, so we got to tie it all together. So Isabel got to go, Isabel and I got to go see 21 Pilots. Nice. In order to do so, we bought the standing room only tickets. We got up at five in the morning. We went out, got in the line. There's races. It's crazy. There's bracelets. It was an all day affair back and forth. It was pretty wild. But the end result is that literally we wound up having Tyler was like, literally we were holding him up in the air while he was singing at the, at the end of the show. So we were in the <laughs> middle of it in the pit and it was, it was really one of the craziest shows I've ever seen. So Isabel loved it, had amazing pictures from that show that are to kill for, and we had an awesome experience. It was it was crazy cool. It was a lot of fun. That sounds good, and, and it's like a connecting moment between you and your daughter and this thing that, that your family has now, which is wonderful. Uh, I have a hard time envisioning uh, myself really getting into something like 21 pilots. <laughs> but then again, my kids are a little bit younger, but I, I never thought that at this point in my life, I would know as much about Justin Bieber as I have come to learn over the last years. So I think it's uh, just must be a generational rollover. You know, these are the, the new bands. And I'm glad to hear that you can uh, find a place in your audio passion to let 21 pilots in, in on some level. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and if I may, I'm going to add one more piece to the story. Yeah. 21 Pilots, this is the 21 Pilots that transitions into the Isabel story. And that is that wasn't the only time we went to see him. Isabel got through her... Oh, groupies, I hear almost, it now. Yeah. Almost her freshman year. Yeah, we've become groupies. It was a fresh, she finished her freshman year. There was a number of things that, that she got through that were quite uh, challenging. And I felt the reward was in order and 21 Pilots tour was ending. And they weren't playing anywhere near us, so I found the closest place on the map to go see them. And it happened to be Little Rock, Arkansas. And it was on a Friday, so Isabel was going to have to skip school. So it didn't take long to talk her into skipping school for the day, let her know that I bought some platinum seats for us to go up and fly to go see 21 Pilots one more time. Wow. So we had a full day in Little Rock. We actually made it 
educational. We saw the Ansel Adams exhibit at the local museum, which was uh, timely, and a whole bunch of other interesting things. We got to see Little Rock, which I thought was awesome as a city. And the show was phenomenal. It was just as good as the last show. We weren't, we weren't holding the band up above our shoulders. But Isabel was prepared for the show. She knew the songs. She knew generally how the show was going to go, and she was aware of when they do their backflips. She was aware of when they do their jumps. So she was actually preparing to take additional photographs for the show. So she had become acquainted with their act. It was, basically, it's like a show. Mm -hmm. It's very much a production. It's really good. And so one of those pictures, we were walking home to the hotel that night. She showed me, and she was like, check this out. And I was like, my like jaw hit the ground. And it was uh, a number of images she had taken, but one in particular that she loved that she thought was incredible. And that picture itself is what she later on submitted to a number of contests. She won a national runner. She was a runner-up national winner for one category. And locally, she was in another category. And so this photograph has gotten some legs. It's, it has grown in her stature and her portfolio it's, it keeps building and so this past spring she submitted it to an independent music award which is essentially the grammys of independent music mm -hmm. and they have categories for design and it's, it's business related so they have categories for producer and, and for design like album cover artwork and, and photography is one of the one of the categories and the judges are a list of who's who of musicians musicians keith richards tom waits a number of really nora jones there are a number of awesome judges that are involved in the organization it's been around for 16 years and the photographers that isabel was nominated with were all professionals since before she was born from around the world and isabel won now oh, wow. called her name she won <laughs> now she is a she is a she is an independent music award winner so it's uh what did she get to that? Did she get like a, a plaque or a, a trophy or anything that she can like show off now, to her friends? As of now it's a large uh, photo it's a large uh, it's a certificate that's that's framed. And I think it's more the photographs of the rappers and the rock stars and the movie stars and the T V stars that we were hanging out with in the after party at the hotel afterwards. So that was the wrap up of the of the awards was certainly something that you wouldn't normally see. So that, that is really what her her biggest trophy was the after party. So that yeah. was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun for our whole family. Was, it was up at Lincoln Center, New York. Our whole family was there. And we had a had an incredible trip. And we got, got to meet a lot of... Uh, That's outstanding. Really cool. Yeah, you should you should just ride her coattails. She might in introduce you around to all the A-list celebrities someday. <laughs> she's, she's got the gift. That's the plan. And so we're, we're letting her dictate her own pace. So, but that, that was one of the more fun and entertaining developments from her love of music, yeah. my love of music, concerts and photography. So that was a lot of fun. No, I, but, I bet. So when I think of a, when I think of a teenager taking pictures, I think of them using their phone. It, does she take everything with her phone or does she have other cameras? It's still her phone. She has, she has nice cameras, but it's her phone. Uh huh. So they, they, they kind of like to keep that part quiet when they were talking to the industry people. I was encouraging it, but they wanted it to sound more professional. So maybe yeah. you could, Edit that part out, but they need to it, know. It, it, is, if, it is with it is it is just with their phone. I'm kidding. Yeah. Hey, if it were, it's a good photo. Is a good photo, right? Yes, yeah, so I'm saying it's a good photo. So if if you're a if you're a golf course designer and you haven't designed a hundred golf courses, but this is your first one, 
and it's still good, what, what difference does it make? No, it doesn't make any difference. I know you are a photographer as well. That's one of the many things that, that you're interested in and that, that you're good at. Uh, wh- what do you shoot with when you go out? I shoot with anything that's, that I can find, anything that's left over. Really, if I, if I can jump back, I, I, wasn't, I was not a photographer before we moved to Texas. I really don't even remember if I had much of a camera. I remember, I remember the first digital cameras that came out, and those, they were kind of terrible and clunky. And I remember it was a big deal that I bought one when I was working. It was like a work, it was a work digital camera. So photography didn't didn't happen till I till we got to Texas, and it was because I was I was helping a number of people, and one in particular was showing me photographs that they had been purchasing by a a good golf course photographer and they weren't necessarily as good as they would have liked so i said well i can i can help i didn't know how i could help but i figured i could help so actually my father-in-law had a couple of old nice single lens reflex cameras that were sitting gathering dust and i don't know how i knew they were around but i i found them and i borrowed them and i I learned how to shoot with film. I read a few books. I read a few landscape photography books. I, I searched as much as I could, and I practiced a bunch with film, and I learned about what films to get and what films were better, and started getting better and better results. And it was slide, slide film, so we'd have to, I'd have to go to the Houston Photo Center and get my slides developed and look at them under a loop, and I was almost like a photographer there for a while. But I, I got really good results. I got good pictures and, and it seemed to be a, a tool that was handy to help a number of the people that I was helping at the time. And then later on, obviously helped myself. And it's been super helpful that now I have a bunch of cameras that I bring with me. I, they're in my pocket. I, I, I document and record everything as we're going during construction. I take thousands of pictures during, during, during projects and I get some chuckles because I'm always taking pictures of everyone. And later on, when you get to see all the pictures, it's it's always worth it. So, photography has become uh, become so much photography. It's hard to manage, and it's hard to it's hard to utilize to its update my website or or share as much of it as I can. Yeah, and then you have to go back and edit the pictures too, which is another thing you couldn't do on film. <laughs> now you have the capabilities of you know you you're obligated to maximize the quality of the of the photograph. Now, I, I'm the same way. When I go out and play and travel, I'm always I always have a camera. I'm always taking photographs, but they turn out terribly. I'm I don't know why I can't take good photographs. Do you have any? What are your tips? What can I do better to produce better photographs on a golf course? Thanks. That that helped. That reminds me that I, I forgot about those days. Well, in the in the moment, I forgot how many courses I went to visit at the beginning, and and I was taking pictures with film cameras still at the time because that was more available. And so there were there were dozens of golf courses that I would go visit and photograph as well as I could. And I think that probably I was photographing it more for the architectural perspective to learn more about the course, but I still did I took a lot of pictures in order to get the results I get today. So the uh, the the off the off-the-shelf first pointers are to to be to be there all the time to be to be on the property at the best hours which is usually morning and evening low light 
conditions and to be perpendicular to the light. I, there, so the, the photographer that, if I may share, the photographer, the professional photographer that was helping an architect that I was helping at the time, I started helping him. Like I, I started editing. When he saw some of the things that we were doing and we were trying to get him to do some of the things, I started to help him. I, I went on some photo shoots with him. I supported him. I even helped him edit some. He hadn't been a Photoshop expert at the time yet, so I started helping him to edit some photos. So uh-huh. I guess I was trained a little bit by a professional photographer in the mix at some point. So so he, he was a he was talented. He took a lot of great pictures of a lot of things. But what I saw was that he wasn't able to dedicate the time required to take a good picture of a golf ball. To take a picture of a golf ball, you have to be there the right time, right day, right conditions, good weather, bad weather. It seemed to me it was more um, not a, a not his abilities, but more his management of his time that didn't allow him to take some of the pictures that the architect that I was working with wanted. Mm-hmm. So being on site as much as we are allows you to get pictures of everything. You have to be there at the right time and get perpendicular to the light. Well, those, those are, that's, it is helpful. That's yeah. The, the morning and, and night thing could be a, a deal killer for some of us, but uh, I'm okay to accept that I'm not going to be a great photographer, but those are helpful. I wonder if, if you believe that to photograph golf courses, do you have to love golf? Do you have to understand golf to enable to get good photographs or can anybody who understands photography and light and landscape get good pictures? I would, I would say both because I've seen lots of beautiful, gorgeous landscape photography that focus on the site and the setting. And if you actually did like a measurement of how much golf is in the picture, you'd see it's like four or five percent. It's like, like a little sliver of golf and everything else is the environment, the ocean or the trees or the sky. Most, so there's a lot of beautiful pictures that don't have a lot of golf content. So in order to get the pictures, some of the other pictures that we like, where you're trying to highlight green contours of the approach or something that is hard to see, that is when we're, your, your golf knowledge would help get much better pictures. Like literally lying on the ground and trying to get a little bump in the green is not something most high-end glossy photographers try to capture. Doesn't, no one cares about a couple little bumps. But we do. They look, they look yeah. good. I just I just thought of this. I wonder if on a good strategic course, a lot of times the best way to play a hole is to like get wide and get an angle into it. And the center of the fairway is not always the optimum place to be. It might be on a certain pin, but often it's not the best place to be. I wonder if that same rule applies for golf. Like if you're better off always kind of getting off the course or off to the side to get a, a unique or different vantage point on the green. Have you thought about that? Is that something that uh, is evident to people who take a lot of photographs? Yeah, there's there's definitely some eye candy spots where you stand in the approach and you stand behind a bunker. So you have the bunker in the foreground, the green in the background. There's a lot of traditional golf hole shots where you're standing at the back of the green, looking back towards the hole. So there's or the standard from the tee. So there are a number of traditional ones, but it does take some time to find some of the different ones or different angles or if you're trying to capture something that's a little bit subtler because it is hard to photograph a lot of the things that we find so interesting on a golf course the little rumples the little like there's some pictures of the old course that where the sky lights it up at dusk and there's some vantage points where you can just see the ripples in the fairway that yeah the right perspective if you're a little higher up you can get a better 
view of that fairway. The second fairway, the 18th fairway, the Valley of Sin, you can see a lot more from a higher vantage point with a low light versus if you're low, it just it kind of looks like the ocean and waves. That's a different, so the whole drone, the whole drone shot changes everyone's ability to photograph and take perspective and get different angles. Some of the, some of the guys taking great pictures out there have. I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about the drones. Um, it, it's cool. It's cool to see, but you know, it, it, I, I wonder if it, if because the quality of the camera is so high and you can, you know, you're in the sky at unlimited vantage points. I wonder if that takes some more of the artistry away from photography by using a drone. I think a little bit. I think a little bit. If and it's more artistic if you're at a at a low elevation than trying to capture the entire hole from above. But then again, you do. It's still condition dependent if you want to be able to see what's happening on the ground. It's. Uh, I, I guess the old course is what was popping up in my head. If you do have a little bit of a vantage point, like if you're at the top of the if you're at the top of the clubhouse or the top of the hotel, you could see when the fairway lights up at the right time. You can see more of the ripples. So. I think it's just like a camera. You need to be you need to be good with your drone. I want to go back to something you said earlier um, about your daughter went through a country music phase, and huh? I was thinking, uh, I know I know you're originally from New Jersey, so it's safe to assume that you didn't grow up on country music in New Jersey. It is safe to assume I did not grow up on country music. What I what I did grow up, I grew up on a lot of heavy metal, but and rock. Like what? Oh, I remember Ozzy Osbourne, ACDC, uh, yeah. Bruce Steen, Billy Joel when I was younger, and mm-hmm. I, that was kind of the that was kind of the range of music. And one of the things that was extremely difficult was going to see shows because the New York metropolitan area it's it's very competitive to get concert tickets. I mean, Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen sell out ten shows at Madison Square Garden. It's not easy to get tickets. That's one of the one of the interesting. Interesting. One of the more fun changes moving to Houston and having a less competitive concert scene. The music scene in Houston is good. There's lots of shows, and the the acts that tour don't necessarily have the same demand down here as they would in a metropolitan in New York City. So, I remember being in Houston just for a short while. David Byrne was. I saw an announcement for David Byrne show. Like it was. It was performing in about two days and i'm like well i might as well look to see if there are tickets available and there were tickets available and i was surprised and i started to learn that it was a lot easier to buy tickets so that was partly what turned into a more of a love for me just the availability of going to see live music yeah call it 10 venues in houston and it's changed over the years but five or six really good ones where there's always a good show a month at each one there's so that's lots of shows and lots of opportunity because it just it, I have I have joined lots of fan clubs and I've joined lots of funky things to get good tickets, and I've I've gotten better at getting good tickets. And sometimes more tickets, sometimes tickets are in greater demand, but but I found it to be much easier to to go to a lot of shows. Yeah, and that that, that certainly is what what helped uh, spur live a love of live music in our family. You still haven't made the conversion being in Texas to country music. No, <laughs> good. No, no, they're they're all they're all pretty fixed in in their in their genres right now yeah they don't need any more fans they've got enough country music yeah. fans yeah there's plenty there's a lot of there's a lot of energy but so we, we've got to get we've got to get into this mike um i think your story is is pretty well known against people who follow golf course architecture and that is uh you went to university of boston or boston university excuse me and came out with an uh 
engineering degree in aerospace and worked in that field for a while. Is that is that the job that uh, brought you to Houston? No, it isn't. That was the job that brought me to golf. So I grew I grew up. Do I, tell. When I, when I was little, I played. Uh, you know, I started my my grandfather's backyard pitching balls to their to their lawn. The, the little umbrella that used to they used to dry their clothes on. We would that would be the that would be the flagstick, and we'd hit chip balls in his backyard and try to hit the the laundry drying thing. I don't even know what you call that, but anyway, the clothesline. It was, but it was like an umbrella. I don't. <laughs> so no, I've, I've seen them. They look like old those like old television antennas. Yeah, that's they spin around. around. Yes, that was it. That was our. That was that your flagstick. Was our flagstick. Yeah, and we would pitch balls from the round, and I was little, and. As I got a little bit older, my father would take me to, we'd play pitch and putt, and then we'd play par three courses, and then we'd play regular courses. And eventually I was a caddy for a couple of summers, and so I had a terrible golf swing, but I enjoyed the game and I could go out and play. And then I put away my golf clubs for a number of years, and when I was working at Lockheed, Lockheed Martin at the time, we, uh, when we were busy, we would work morning, noon, and night, and our project would be kind of like a golf project where you would go from, you could work all day long. We had multiple shifts. There was lots to do. And in downtimes, there was less to do. And so our schedule would kind of wind up like if you were in a slow season, a slow summer or something, our, our day would end pretty early because we started pretty early. And actually at the time, my wife Nancy was, we were living together and she was commuting from Manhattan. And so I had a number of hours to kill. And so about, I had about four hours every afternoon where I had, I had some, uh, something I could go do. And so there was, a little, there was a little golf course right near the plant that was five minutes away. And that was, that was the easiest and most fun thing to do. We, we would started playing more and more frequently. And I, I played more. I'd been playing with my family over the years, but once a couple times a year, my father and his brothers. And so... I was around the game, but I wasn't. I wasn't a junkie. I wasn't hooked. But but when I was working at Lockheed, I became hooked. And I, I became so hooked that being a couple of my friends that we had at work, we would. This was the beginning of the internet. This was the beginning of. I didn't have an email address until I started working there, and they were big, massive computers we had. And that's when Monster.com was born. And so you could start looking for jobs. And whenever we would do a job search, whenever I did a job search. It eventually became where golf was a part of one of my search terms. And as a search term, lots of most of the jobs pop up like as golf as a perk. I was thinking of golf as more as a part of the function of the job. So that's that's kind of how becoming a golf junkie and, and literally starting to cater what I was doing and even saying how much I enjoyed it, that it it, it might be it was fun it was a fun kind of amusing thing to, to do in the afternoons. It wasn't, it didn't really seem practical. It, it still doesn't seem, for many in the field. <laughs> but, but, but one day, I will say, I, I was, I, I had started to buy books. I started by, probably one of the first ones I bought was Mike in Golf Architecture book. Mm -hmm. And in there, there's a chapter on CAD. And I, I read the chapter and I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> CAD? I know everything about CAD. I could, I could teach anyone anything that they needed to know about CAD. I've been using CAD extensively. I've been trained by the best. Our CAD systems were crazy good. And I was, I was training our teams on how to use CAD. 
what CAD was and what CAD was for us. And they were developing like their own processes. And I was a little, it seemed a little strange how they were going about it, but I obviously didn't have any idea what went into the, into the profession at the time, but I knew the hell if they need some CAD help, I could certainly help them. So that, that was the one time where I actually saw like a conduit where I saw like a glimpse of maybe I could help. Maybe I could help someone. Maybe I could help get in an office. Because at the time it sounded like they had an office, they had a number of like CAD people. <laughs> and that, that was, that was a different era. There used to be CAD people at, at a number of firms. But that seemed to be something where I thought I could I, I could have value for someone. That was the late '90s. So you work, so you, but you're still in the. How how serious were you about transitioning? I mean, did did you know you were going to make a major major career move like that, or, or were you just kind of entertaining yourself, exploring the idea? It was more whimsy, mm-hmm. really. I remember I printed out. I found. So I've always been a designer more as than an engineer in my profession like i've been i've been designing more than engineering if that it's a little subtle difference but but it's been a lot of focus on design i remember one time where i i found an 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 opening for at a firm at a golf golf course design firm i never heard of and i still wouldn't have heard of but they had an opening was probably some kind of landscape architecture firm they had some need for some golf course design and so i got a project and I found it. I was like, huh, that's, that certainly seems to be uh, something that would be viable. So it, it was more whimsy, and then I guess it became more and more concrete. And I remember there were a couple of things that made it more and more concrete. There, was a, there were a few other postings that I submitted for, and one, I, one became quite interesting. And I, I started to feel like, yeah, I feel like this would be a good, this would be a good transition. Like, I, I'd really like to do this. Did you have any idea what the economic ramifications were? <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming, you, you know, with your background and experience, you were making a nice salary being in, a, in aerospace. And then you go to whatever, you know, your first jobs were uh, with working in golf. Probably a, a slight depression there. Am I wrong? Yeah, it was a significant change. And the, there, there, there was a, the, the big shift was when we were living in New Jersey. Nancy was working in New York. I was working in New Jersey. And her, her brother was ill. And so we wanted to support her brother and her brother's family and her family. And so we, that's what was the big event or the big, that was, that was a major part in why we moved to Houston to, to be with her brother and to support her family. So that was, that was very difficult. And that was, uh, good move, and that was that was the that was the big part of us moving to Houston. So now we've picked up and moved across. It's a pretty long. Nancy flew down. I drove. Mm-hmm. So when we were moving, I drove, and I took like two weeks to get here. And uh, that was <laughs> essentially that was going to be the birth of my real education in golf course architecture. Because at the time, I just took the the golf magazine top 100 public you can play and i played every golf course from from that i the best golf courses i could find from new jersey to sawgrass to houston so i didn't go straight here i i went down 95 to sawgrass and i made a i made a right on i10 so it was the least direct path you could find but but i was at pinehurst and kiowa sawgrass and a number of other 
So I saw some strands work on the way. I saw a cool Palmer course on the way. I saw the Jones Trail on the way. So I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of really good public golf. Right. That was, that was my, that was a two week intensive course to try to help transition to what what I thought was going to come when we got to when we got to you. Yeah, you know, so many people who are in the design and architectural field now cut their teeth on links courses and kind of upscale classic courses. You know, they do a study of all the Ross and Tillinghast courses or that's in their background some way. I think you're the first person that I've talked to that really jumped in the exploratory phase is hitting public golf courses. That's going to give you a slightly different perspective on golf and golf architecture and sort of the democracy of golf than if uh, somebody who is playing all these, you know, more inaccessible places with either because of exclusivity or, you know, distance overseas. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like, like having that crash course early on to public golf changed your, your vision of the design field at all? I, I certainly feel like I have a perspective of being a little kid and waiting to tee off at our municipal golf course and the starter looking at us like, there's no way I'm going to let you guys tee off, even though we were, we were still, we were pretty good. I mean, we were good enough to play, you know, to keep up and play well. I mean, you know, whether we were breaking 100 or breaking 90, I mean, that's plenty good enough to, to play with the old codgers, you know, at the time, the, guy, the grumpy guys didn't want the little kids coming, playing through. So I, I saw a lot of that. As, as it pertains to design, I guess one, one of the, I remember, so when I, when we got to Houston, I spoke to a number of people, entities, designers, builders, courses to help me get a start. And I remember one of the first meetings I had with a, with a firm in, it was Jacobson Hardy and one of their associates was kind enough to let me come in and chat with them for a while. I remember I said to him, like, I, I remember walking to his office going, Oh my God, someone really does do this, you know, to, to see it first. <laughs> Really, that was the first time I'd ever seen an office for designing golf courses. I was like, "Wow, that's it's really it's sustaining for a, for this office." And at the time, I remember saying, "But you're just designing golf courses. How? Who cares what it is? It doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or terrible, or indifferent. This is this is this is the greatest thing ever." It was what I is how I recall walking into their office, and I remember him sharing with me, "Well, you know, it needs to have some. It's not just like that. We need to have a lot of." You know, we, we care about the art form. And really, to that point, I was still, I was like a kid in a candy store. Mm-hmm. I had no education or, I basically had seen the black course when I was little. That was that was the extent of my of my golf architecture heritage. Right. Playing, playing terrible municipal, not terrible, but playing beat up. There were some bank, there were some bank municipal courses in the air. There were some. There were some bank-influenced municipal courses at the time, so well, I did see some neat features, but but uh, there hadn't been much until I was older. Mm-hmm. There was le- there was very little awareness of what architecture was until until I traveled, until we moved. And I knew then, things were better, but I didn't really know. And then you started working with uh, the the firm of uh, Finger Die Span, who are based out of the Houston area, I believe. And yes. what did what did you what were your primary responsibilities or contributions during those first years that you had resettled in Houston? Thanks. Yeah. So they were they were Baxter was the first person that really answered my phone more than once. I mean, the guys at Jacobson Hardy. I remember I, I met with I met with the team at Von Hagee. I 
met with uh, at the time Steve Elkington had a had an office with an associate. So there were a number of people that they, and they introduced me to some other people that really turned into some really good contacts. Like there was a there was a good builder in town, and then other clubs. So I, there was some good networking. My my goal when we moved to Houston was to become an associate at a firm. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if there were enough firms in Houston. I didn't I didn't know that the, the golf market was about to crash and couple. I didn't know. I didn't do any smart planning on from an economic feasibility standpoint why <laughs> I should do this. It seemed, like, it seemed like something that I really wanted to to pursue. There are a number of reasons. Work the company Lockheed Martin had hundreds of thousands of employees, and I I definitely got to. I was I was important. I was an important cog, but. But I definitely got the sense that at any point they just might replace the whole machine because they were they would close down plants, they would open plants. I mean, we're talking about lay off seven thousand people here and add a plant for a thousand people there. So there's there was a lot of large macro issues that where it was cyclical and it, it was felt like things were just as out of control. How how much different could it be? That was really that was my naivete or what I that was my perception at the time. But it was it was Baxter, who, who when I did I went the first time I met with Baxter I walked into their office, and on the wall was a huge plan for Black Mesa, and I, I looked up and I was like holy cow, I'm this is definitely the office I would want I'm definitely in the right spot to, there's something a little different going on here this this is, so Black Mesa was a course that was it was under construction it was finishing. Baxter had a large plant, like a large plant of it, in their office, and it it was like, it was jaw dropping, and it turned into like I went to I got to go visit the site with them, and I remember it was around a golf. So before before I I really was never an employee, but before I did anything for them, it was around a golf. So I they didn't really have any need for an associate. They didn't have any need for any help. They didn't have any. They didn't know who I was. They're like, why would why would why would Mike come in and help us? So it was around a golf where I wanted to get to know him a little bit better, and and I was playing at a at a club. It was a kind of a public club, but it was a, he hadn't played there, so it was a it was a course. We went out, we spent some time together, we got to know each other, and, and we we enjoyed each other's company. And I and during the during a longer conversation, he described he described CAD because I because CAD was one of the things I'd asked him about. He described how they were trying to use CAD to show some depictions to show what they were doing to get a better illustrative process to show their clients. And he knew that they knew that CAD was an option and but they didn't I don't know if they didn't have maybe they bought a package but they hadn't learned how to use it yet. And I said, Well I'd like to help. And so I remember I bought the package. I loaded it up on my computer and I I, I learned how to use it. It was it was awkward. It wasn't like any you know when I say I knew how to use CAD, I knew how to use CAD. I knew the theory of CAD and all the things you could do with CAD, but this using a landscape program was something that was quite a bit different, and it was pretty rudimentary for the, you know, call it 2000, 2001. So it didn't have a whole lot of what you'd see now, but I got him some results eventually. So that was literally, I was, I I got a picture for him. Essentially, I got a picture for him. That was that was the goal. My goal was to get like a picture of like a short game area they were building or maybe I it was like a test of some a black mesa just to show them something and then then the client asked well what does the lake look like from the clubhouse view and so you know they could show some perspectives they said well why not have Mike try to do a rendering of what 
the lake looked like from the clubhouse. Like, like literally, that was one month they would ask for one picture, then the next month it'd be like the picture of the short game area, and that was that was essentially the work I was doing for them. If that it, that isn't very sustaining, if that if that if you can picture that, <laughs> I can, yeah. And so that's when I started finding they had they had some they had photography needs and they had website needs and then I met the builder and the builder had some GPS needs and then I, I met the club and they had some GPS needs and then so then I found myself studying photography, studying GPS and studying landscape CAD at this time to try to try to basically tr- the goal was to become an associate that I thought it would be to become an associate and I figured these are all tools that I, that would be helpful and, and help me be an associate but but then after meeting with the number finding the number of firms and what it means to be an associate, they don't. No one needs an associate. Like if, if someone called me now and asked if they could like have a job with me as an associate, there wouldn't be a whole lot of room in my office. You know, be in my office above my garage. <laughs> right. Based on based on business. Yeah, you can be my associate if you work from your home and don't need to get paid. Absolutely. That that is that was kind of what I was learning, and really. So so Baxter was great. We spent a lot of time together. But they didn't have a full-on need for. It wasn't a need. It wasn't a good return for them. And so one year they were, they Baxter had a renovation at a Beaumont Country Club, which is uh, just just on the border of Texas, Louisiana. It's like an hour and a half. And I don't know if I knew or, but I, I offered. I said, "Can I be an apprentice for you for a year?" And he's like, "What do you mean?" I said, like, "Well, you know." Let me do every. Let me do everything that I that I can that you may or may not want to do, but that you wouldn't normally do, or that maybe you have more time to do something else. I said, I'll just I'll just work as an apprentice, so without pay. He said, and he knew what I was doing. You he had knew me that I was, free. He wanted to help, and that that's uh, so that summer, I think it was o three o three o four ish, that uh, we went to. I spent the summer at Beaumont Country Club. So basically, all his site visits, I was with him. I was shadowing him everywhere we went. I was the the plan detailer, so he had he did a lot of sketches, and I converted them into plans for him. And so I got to see. I to that point, I'd seen a lot of pieces. That was the first time where I got to see everything from soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. But soup to nuts, the very beginning of the project, he told me that he'd been working. He first started meeting with the club some time ago, and and the club had gone through permutations of green committee and general managers and head pros and and that that would have I heard it and I was listening and I was kind of surprised that when he said it was 13 years from the time when they started talking to the time when they started the renovation I was like wow that's crazy but <laughs> but it turns out that that's not that that's not that unusual I, I would have never figured 13 years would be like anything you'd even consider yeah you got to play the long game we're waiting for a renovation project so there were there were there was lots of information I was learning, but that was that was something that's demonstrative of how difficult this business is. Not the architecture, not the design, but the business itself. Mm-hmm. And like I have, I have a lot of friends now, and, and I have a friend that that I think of quite highly, and I think of the number of clients that he works with to keep a sustainable business. It's it's a lot. Yeah. When you, when when all those thirteen years stack up on each other. You have to you know, try to manage the work you do with this club, that club. It's a, it seems almost impossible without having done it for a long time. Well, a few years after that, we're going to jump forward just a little bit. A few years after that, you got what I think a lot of people in your business would consider a dream job, 
Um, I'm not sure if you feel that way. I'd be curious to get your your input on Wolfpoint and how that's turned out. But you were hired essentially to build a private course for a single owner, a single investor on his own property that was intended basically for his own use, and he could in, and whoever else he invited to play it. And it you had the luxury. Or maybe it was a burden. I'm not sure, but you know, it took you a, a number of years and very kind of slowly, piece by piece, parceling it and figuring it out and putting it together. So, d- tell us about Wolf Point and and how you got that job coming off of the experiences working with Baxter Span and his firm. Yeah, I I view the Wolf I view Al and Wolf Point as being like a fault of lightning. It was it was. I view it as extraordinarily fortunate, an extraordinarily fortunate opportunity, project, relationship, piece of property, and everything about it I view as, uh, with hindsight as being amazing. So at, at prior to that point, I because I never was working for someone as an associate, remember I, I apprenticed, I helped a lot of other architects, I helped, I helped a number of people from as far and wide as I could find, but because I never was an employee of anyone. I, I always had my own website. I always had my own marketing doormat on the internet. And so I, I learned a bit about search engine optimization. I learned a bit about a number of things when I was helping other firms with their websites and, and other entities. Uh, even some, there was some building contractors and even some developers and owners I was helping at the time too. So I, so aside from those other entities, I, I did I did learn quite a bit about search engine optimization, and I'm not saying that's not why, but Al certainly found me by uh, doing a Google search. <laughs> awesome. Um, Google, Google searches could have been anything, and I, I I was paying for clicks a little bit, and it was search engine optimization, and and he did, I don't know how many architects he talked to, but he did describe having spent some time talking to the Greg Norman the Norman course design, and so. So he, there was, there was some reason why he did pick me, and uh, if, if if I I I'm remembering the conversation when Al called, he asked me if I was what like literally was like the first or second question he asked me if I was a fancy golf course designer, and <laughs> I, I thought I knew what he meant, and I said I think I told him that I that I was like. Uh, you know, more like a practical, not practical, but I, t- I, I told him I wasn't a fancy designer. I think he meant, I think he meant like a signature designer, which was probably what his experience has been to that point. Yeah, you know? he 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 meant fancy. I think like, like we're saying, like yeah, are you a are you a hoity-toity, you know, big name, big league, big leaguer kind of architect? Are we going to have to each be in our own helicopter fighting yeah. over there where the go. golf ball gets? Is what he was asking. So, so. For whatever reason, I was pretty anxious about meeting with him, and there were some scheduling conflicts, and I wasn't going to be able to get down there because I was about to get on a plane, I remember, and it was an extensive trip. And he said, there's no rush, Mike. You just come down whenever you want. And had, had if I, looking back on it, I would have just canceled everything and just driven down to see him. But I had no idea who he was, what he was. The, but the, in the conversation, a couple minutes in, he was describing how he had about 100 and he had about 140 acres. That was his next question. He had 140 acres. Is that enough for a golf course? So I gave the standard answer is Marion's on like 105, 110. That's plenty of plenty of room for a golf course, but it's you know, site dependent. And he said, I do have some more land across the street. So if we wanted to 
you know, if we needed to add another hole or two, we have we have a little bit of a reserve. I said, oh, okay, like then you certainly have enough. I hope. I don't. I just mm-hmm. said yes because I would say yes to anyone at that point. And eventually, when I went, he said, "There's no rush, Mike. There's no hurry. Whenever you get down, we'll take a look for the property." And I remember driving down, and I still had no idea what he wanted. I'm sorry. The one question I did ask him, I said, "Is this going to be a public course or a private?" And he said his exact words were, I don't have too many friends. I think he wow. said it'll just be him. So I, I was like... This is unique. I didn't... I was a little confused. <coughs> I was a little confused. So so eventually when I, I get him, I, I drive down. I'm going to visit him. And I'm thinking the whole... It's, an, it's 100 miles. 110 miles. And I'm thinking the whole way. Let's see. Does he need irrigation? Does he need drainage? Does he need sand? Does he need anything? What does he need? Like literally, if he's if you can have your own golf course, what do you need if you want to have your own golf course? Do you need to like just mow it? What, what could what could? Because I'm figuring that he has no money. I'm figuring that he's this is a fool's ride that I'm wasting my time. That he's got some piece of land that it's nothing's ever going to come of it. So I I figured, could it be one hole with like a green at each end? Could it be two holes if he's lucky? I mean, literally, I was thinking, could it be? I was I was getting there going. I was I would have been happy. Or I was optimistic that it was going to be like one hole with a green at either end, and there'd be no irrigation and no drainage. And if it rained, the golf, you know, we'd have a golf. Yeah. Like that's what I was hoping for. And I remember pulling into the complex, and it was a complex. When I saw it, I was like, oh, my perspective changed a little bit because there was like, turns out I didn't know what they were, but there were a lot of buildings. There was a horse barn that had like 50 half Arabian horses. There were at the time, there weren't zebras, but later on, there were zebras and camels and Watusi and all kinds of animals everywhere. And so I met him at his, at his house, which was at a cool little bluff. In, it was a cool little property. And later on, when, when I would look at his property from above, it would be huge. It would be like a peninsula the same size. that like It was like a thousand-acre peninsula that he, that he lived on, that his, his house was on. And... I said, well, I'm, I, I guess I'm not really too sure what what is going to happen. I have no idea. I don't. He may or may not want one hole. So we're driving to go look at it, the 140-acre parcel, and he kind of pointed. He said, "There's there's the land over there, but you know what? Never mind. Let's just go across the street." Remember, I said I had more land. I said, "Okay." He's like, "Yeah, I have 1,500 acres over here." I'm like, "This guy, <laughs> what is he? What is he doing to me over here?" He's, he 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 had 1,500 acres of ranch. On the other side of the property that he called a little piece, you know, he's still just kind of feeling me out because he didn't know what to expect. He didn't want some crazy guy coming in with a helicopter and a cape. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't know yet that you were not fancy. No, he did not. He did. He wasn't sure yet. And so it was essentially a cattle ranch, and he had been clearing the trees on his own. He had a he had a backhoe, a trackhoe. He had a backhoe that he was literally. He bought a ranch, and he wanted to have nice cattle on it, and he wanted it to look pretty. So he was taking down the trash trees. And his wife suggested, you, it kind of seems a little boring out there knocking trees down every day. Why don't you build yourself a golf course? I'm like, I, I, I didn't know that yet. That this, this I learned much later. But it was, I, have, I have his wife to thank for the, for the idea to build a golf course. So we drive onto the 1500 parcel. And we're driving. And it's just like flat, open ranch. And we get to a creek. And then we drive to the back of the property. And then we turn back. And we get back to the creek. Can I go? The golf course will be here. He goes, how do you know that? We haven't been on the property long. I go, well, that's all there is, is this creek. In a nice, in a nice loving way, as I could say it, I said, I think that this is 
the major feature on the property. So I, I had uh, I had just come back from visiting Texas Tech. I remember I remember Golf Club Atlas was a huge part of my education at the beginning as well. I remember reading a lot of what Tom Doak had written about Texas Tech while it was under construction, and he was describing how they were hiding their drainage and hiding their irrigation and making everything look very as natural as possible. And so I flew out there to go see what they were doing, and I I, I did get a chuckle because I, I knew it was a flat, I had read it was a flat cotton ranch, and I was interested to know how they were going to make the drainage look good on a flat cotton ranch. And I got there, and I saw the earthwork, and I like I chuckled walking down the first fairway. I loved the golf course. Played it two or three times during my visit. I thought it was awesome, and it was really fun. And it was clear to me that in order to make the drainage work, they they made <laughs> they made the holes great. They they there was a lot of shaping. It wasn't it wasn't like some fancy kind of aerospace. Right. That's what made you laugh is because it was such a simple solution to the drainage problem. They just shaped the hell out of it. Pra- 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 practical in that in that it that's what, you know gravity is what makes drainage work versus like they they describe the irrigation that that you wouldn't see the whole road or you'd only see the pop up part. So I'm expecting like the drainage to be and because I remember I'd read about Pacific Dunes where they had they they described the drainage they put underneath the the sand there was a little bit different. Um, so they didn't have any basins that they, they created like an underground basin. So I was expecting something kind of high techy when I was walking down and I walked down the fairway and I, I, I chuckled and I was like, oh, God, that's this is awesome. But it was very enlightening to see firsthand. So it it, it, it was a big help. So 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 the reason I'm bringing Texas Tech up is because I knew that there was a ballpark budget and I knew just the publicly claimed budget was somewhere in the. You know, like an eight million dollar budget to build the golf course, and so I knew Al's property was flat, and he he asked me, he's like, well, how much would a golf course cost to build? And and now uh, having spent as much time with Don as I have, and, and as many number of clients that I have, I don't know how you know, Don Mahaffey. I'm, we, we can talk about him and his role at Wolf Point shortly because we're we're about to come to the point where I, I meet Don, which is a big a big deal. But yes, uh, like now I when I. Like I could picture if Don and I were in that car at that first meeting when Al asked how much it cost, how much it would cost, and I said eight million dollars. He would have been, he would have been like hitting me in the in the ribs with an elbow, going, "What the hell are you doing? You know, why why we don't know how much we don't know anything about anything yet. What do you, how can you guess a number? So I just, I, I I that's one of the things I I literally still haven't learned, and I'm I'm very open to guessing numbers, and uh, I'm sometimes right. I'm obviously mostly wrong, but at least I'm. There's a there's a basis between my guess. So I was just describing to him that I'd seen a project that was recently built on a flat piece of property, and this is what they did. I, I didn't tell him how much earth was moved or whatnot, and I just kind of described it because that just that seemed like what he was asking. And so we, we get back. We, we had we had a good time in the site visit. We get back. We go back to his house, and his wife comes out and meets us, and she says, "Hi, honey. How was it?" And he goes, "It's pretty good. I think the golf course will be eight million dollars." I was like, what? <laughs> what? Like, I swallowed my, my throat. I was like, what are you doing telling your wife it's going to be $8 million? I obviously am not saying this out loud, but but that was that was like my, inside my brain. I could picture me coming home and telling my wife that I was going to build a golf course and know it only is going to cost $8 million. But only. That's, that's yeah. just where I was. I, I just had his perspective was not what I was expecting. So I was surprised. It was funny. Like our first lunch, he told me all kinds of funny stories about him and 
about his business and he was just he was letting him get to know me and that was something that 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 it, it, it took that was a bit of a jar i wasn't expecting like a casual lunch conversation that but I, at the time i didn't know it was his wife's idea to build the golf course too so even still it wouldn't make a lot of sense to come home and, and tell your partner that that you're about to spend eight million dollars on a golf course so we never spent anywhere near that much but that was that was our first meeting so we're, we're leaving i'm leaving i'm saying goodbye he says so what happens next i said well i write a proposal and i describe what we talked about today and i i say uh, this is what we could do because he still he was still talking about a 18 hole golf course and like i'm thinking my hand the proposal could be like three hole i could still i was not off the three hole nine hole six hole 12 hole 11 hole schematic concept for him i said i'll get you a proposal and you tell me what you think and then we'll go from there he said how about i just give you a retainer and you go to work and i was like oh my god <laughs> i was like or we could do that <laughs> So I meant, yeah, I meant that. Yeah. yeah we'll just exchange money right now. That's exactly what I meant. So <laughs> literally that, like that's been our goal. That wasn't my, that was just a completely accidental goal. And that's the way I went to work. And partially every time Don's hitting me in the ribs, it's like, let's just get to work enough with the proposal stuff. And I'm still like, when we meet with a new client, there's still like, it feels like they're asking for proposal, but, but it's so much better if we can just get to work. So to this point, that's already three crazy things that that have never happened since, right? Someone that didn't even need a proposal, someone that yeah. didn't, and so many of them were driven by Al. Like literally, to some point, we're in, we're either planning construction, we're starting construction. Al goes, well, but if I don't like it, we'll just bulldoze it again. I'm like, oh god. So, like we were we were trying to get him engaged and get him on the golf course. It's like if I don't like it, we'll just blow the whole thing up, and either I'll start again or I'll just give up. Like there was never, it that that's <laughs> like you're not going to hear that from anyone else ever again either. So that's already five once in a lifetime comments that I would never hear from someone else. So I, I remember the first couple routing, like I, I, I so literally I went back and I did a sketch and I put it on his property and I brought it back and I showed him. And uh, one other funny thing about that meeting, so I showed him and he looked at it, the sketch. He goes, "Well, you can't go over here and you can't go over there and you can't go over there." I'm like, "Oh," so then that helped me kind of. It's like you need to be 500 feet from the property lines. You can't. I can't have anyone ever build a home and see what's on the golf course. This has got to be very private, which is partly why we weren't on that 140-acre piece because that was right along the road. So that's that's how it started. Just kind of learning where we could go, and it was it was at that. I think that was like the first golf meeting we had, and it was probably the initial conversation where he said he wanted to have the golf course be challenging. But he didn't want to waste time looking for golf balls. So basically, that was the that was part of the first phone call. And when he said that, I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's the greatest thing I ever heard." So that's six. That that's like six things now. He wanted to never yeah. lose a golf ball, not because he wanted to, because he didn't care about the golf ball. He didn't want to waste his time looking for a golf ball and long grasses. Like when he would go play somewhere, he'd spend five minutes looking for a ball or not. So, and he wanted it to be challenging. I'm like, that's the old course. I don't. I didn't tell him at the time because he wouldn't have necessarily known what I was describing, but I knew, I knew that's what the old course was. It was play, play the game that you want to play, and generally it's pretty hard to lose a golf ball. So that's that's what yeah. I, that's what I interpreted it. when he he maybe he could have said anything, and I still I still would have interpreted it as oh he wants the old course because the old course can be anything. 
but that's what I heard. I heard him say he wanted the old course on his ranch. So yeah, you heard, that's what you heard. Yes, <laughs> no he, 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 he didn't I know it, but that's what he meant too. That's what he meant too. I think that's really yeah. what he meant. Yeah.